Hello, Dr. Day, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi, nice to meet you. It's really nice to meet you too, and we've been really excited to interview you. One of your patients was so excited about the work that you had done with her that we had interviewed in the past, and she said, you must speak to Dr. Day. She's an absolute star and somebody who has um, radically altered my life. In fact, I think she even described you as somebody who had saved her life, so we had to get you on. So uh, I apologize for taking as long as it did to get you on here because we just have so... Uh, so dense a schedule, but finally, the stars have aligned that we have the brilliant Dr. Day on today. So why don't you talk to us first about where you're practicing? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a, a prescriber and physician in Oregon, and I do my practice virtually with pretty much all patient care. So um, that was something that changed post-pandemic for me, but it's still um, in the works currently as far as how I see my patients. So um, we're licensed in only certain states in the United States, naturopathic doctors. So in Oregon, we have one of the broadest scopes of practice. So that's one reason why I'm here. Um, I also went to naturopathic medical school in Oregon. So stayed here afterward um, because I found there were a lot of Lyme patients who were not getting the proper diagnosis or care. So doing my work here ever since. So where, where, where were you before you moved to Oregon to, uh, to uh, get your medical education? Uh, I grew up in California, um, the Bay Area of California. And um, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. I remember when I was a little girl, I would follow my mom to her job because she worked at Stanford Hospital and get as many of the doctors to like me as possible so that I could convince them to take me on rounds and <laughs> into the places that of the hospital that most people don't even get to go to. I remember going up to the roof of the hospital and checking in people who came in on air flight. Uh, yeah, I actually had a broader scope of practice then maybe than I do now, <laughs> but uh, it really got my interest in medicine. And um, then my own health journey is really what led me toward the naturopathic part of medicine. Um, but I did train as a microbiologist at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, um, is where I got my undergraduate. So that's really where I got my interest in microbiology and disease and really started my pre-med program. So you've only you've always known from your early childhood that that working in the healing, working as a healing professional was something that uh, you were created to do? I would tell everybody that I wanted to be a doctor or an actor or an actor that played a doctor. Okay. Before I could, I could talk when I was one years old. So this was for a very long time that I had these ideas. And um, I remember my mom even wrote it in my yearbook. Well, doctor or actor will love you either way. <laughs> Whichever you Here I am. So, um, so at this early stage in your life, your your mom had access to doctors. What what kind of work was your mom doing that she was able to bring her geeky daughter to work so that she could uh, she could get doctors to bring her around on rounds? Um, she was an educator, um, but um, she would educate families. And um, my favorite part was that she taught a sibling preparation class for um, new siblings who were about to have their brother or sister arrive and I got to help with that class and just teach the kids basically how not to do anything that would harm their new sibling. So 
that was um, my first experience as being a medical educator. And I really liked working in the hospital and in the clinical setting and um, yeah, helping pe people through life. So you, you began to tease us a little bit about your own health journey uh, and how that how that caused you to shift your interest from being an allopathic doctor to a naturopathic doctor. So give us a little bit about uh, about that. When when did your health journey begin um, that gave you the inspiration to um, pivot from uh, traditional medicine to uh, more natural medicine? Well, um, I was at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, and looking back, I did not realize at the time what had happened. Um, it was in December, but I remember that um, it was Christmas break from college. So I'd flown home to Dallas, Texas, and we were all going to Hawaii as a family together. Um, and my mom had got me a new outfit to wear. So I was trying it on and she said, what's that on your leg? And I'm like, what's what on my leg? And there happened to be like a bullseye rash. And um, I didn't even really notice it or think anything of it. And then uh, told her like, well, it's not a big deal. Plus we had so much we were doing. So kind of brushed it off and then um, noticed that it started to ulcerate and look strange. So showed my mom again and she goes, oh, this is not look good. Um, is it painful at all? And actually it was a little painful and itchy. So I wasn't ever sure what it was, but I went to the ER in Dallas and, um, I didn't remember what antibiotic they prescribed, but I remember that when I went to Hawaii, I felt terrible in the sun. So I'm pretty sure it was doxycycline. And, um, that was not a great trip at all to Hawaii. My mom missed her flight because we couldn't get to the airport in time. Um, and it was right after 9-11. So um, they wouldn't let her on the plane without all of our luggage is what the deal was. And so she didn't get to Hawaii till a couple of days later. And um, I just remember it being a miserable trip where um, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I couldn't go in the sun. And the one day it rained, I went outside wearing a black shirt, but the dye went all over my skin. I'm sure that didn't help either. So yeah. And, um, I graduated from Cal Poly with my microbiology degree, but I remembered it being harder as I was finishing my degree. So can I, can I ask you to pause that for a second and build out a little bit for us, um, why you went to, um, Cal Poly? Um, and what inspired you to major in microbiology? So I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo because actually, to be honest, I was thinking about going to UC Davis, but I knew my ex-boyfriend from high school was going there and I wasn't sure I wanted to go to the same school as him. And the day I looked at the school, it smelled like cows. So, <laughs> uh, I chose Cal Poly instead because they had a microbiology program and um, I really liked being by the beach. So that all was right. so, so it hit all three important um, elements. No ex-boyfriends, uh, microbiology and a nice beach. So I, you know, look, I, I, think, I think you made a good choice based on all the important elements of that decision. So let's focus on the major part of it, not the boyfriend or the beach piece of it. 
So what was it about microbiology that um, interested you? Why did you want to study that as somebody who wanted to be a healer? I mean, you had this, you had this um, understanding at a very early age that God had made you to work in the medical profession. So talk to us about why you were, you were inspired to, you know, to focus on this, um, on this field um, of microbiology. Microbiology. Actually, I remember I didn't really know what it was when I first signed up for it. Um, but I asked my mom, like, what, what should I go for as far as the sciences? And she told me her favorite doctors had more experience in microbiology. And so I should do that. Um, so to be honest, I really just followed her guidance there, even though I was in a health career pathways program all throughout high school, that was for that reason to try to guide us into health careers. Um, I remember all of my friends chose nursing and went to nursing school, and I was the only one who chose microbiology and was going to pursue medicine. And then Cal Poly told me that I, that was the wrong school to go to, that there wasn't very many pre-med students there, but I just decided to go anyway because um, I really enjoyed my experience there in the first classes that I had. So... Well, and of course, that's foreshadowing a little bit because now we have the sort of clash of worlds, right? Where we have this young woman who is studying microbiology and now she finds herself with a bullseye rash, which we now know was uh, was very much in line with uh, with this uh, with microbiology, right? And that's one to be the honest, um, I always wonder if I got exposed somehow from being in my microbiology program itself because the professor that was um, teaching most of my lab classes at the time, her project was studying Borrelia and ticks. So she was going and collecting ticks in the field and bringing them back to the lab. And I remember her looking in the dark field microscope and she was always working right next to us and sometimes writing things down or getting excited about things she saw. So we would always question her about her research that was ongoing at the time. And um, the first thing I thought of when I realized this was Lyme connection for, perhaps to my health issues was I dug into some of her research that was published at Cal Poly and realized then that the brillia that she was finding in the ticks was not brillia for dwarfery, Lyme disease, but different strains of brillia. So that was what first opened my eyes to, oh, wow, this is really complex tick-borne illness. This is not just like Lyme disease. And no wonder... I can't get a doctor to really listen to me when it's maybe a strain that we haven't even recognized as a clinical pathogen yet. Well, so let's 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 pause there for a second because the the question that I had in my mind when you said that you were in school, you're studying microbiology, and and you now come home with a bullseye rash is whether or not you were in your in your um, in your labs or any of your clinical studies, whether or not you were coming in contact with. Uh, with ticks or or tick diseases, and sure enough, you answered that question before I even asked it, which was holy cow! Maybe maybe you did get bitten by a tick that was released in the lab where you were working, and there you are, uh, you know um, now. Oh, I, I really was an outdoorsy person though too, and um, I loved San Luis Obispo. So my idea was that I was going to go back to San Luis Obispo after naturopathic medical school and open a practice there. But actually, I had such a horrific experience going back and going on one of my favorite hikes, um, just crossing the paths of a herd of sheep that were covered in ticks. And then the ticks actually came, got onto my dogs that were on the hike with us. So we had to go emergency to the vet and get them treated. 
So that was a huge eye-opener that I could have been exposed to way more ticks than I had realized when I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. And, and and I think we're all exposed to many more ticks than we're aware of. And one of the things that happens uh, when we when we become Lyme woke um, is that we start to see the ticks on us, which were probably on us in the past. And we just didn't see them or find them or feel them. And there are a lot of different reasons why that's the case. Right. Part of it is they're really small. Part of it is they're really good at avoiding our capacity to perceive them because they move very slowly. Part of it is we just don't do tick checks regularly, either on ourselves or have partners or family members check us. And when you put all of that together, it makes it it makes us vulnerable to getting bitten by ticks and having ticks feed on us for a long time, unfortunately resulting in things like a bullseye rash. So you did share with us that you found this bullseye rash uh, before your trip from Dallas to Hawaii. Um, you did go to you did go to a doctor, and um, when you when you uh, did come across the bullseye rash before you went to the doctor, did you think anything about Lyme disease? Meaning, was that anything you were studying, even though you were sort of exposed to it by a, by a fellow professor doing work in the lab? To be honest, I don't think at the time I thought about Lyme disease, even though I probably did already have education about it. I remember arguing with my mom that it was a spider bite and thinking it was a spider bite for some reason. And it being December, I don't know. And even though I had education at the time, it wasn't to the point of education that I have now about Lyme right, so, disease. So, so you, you had awareness right? You are generally aware of, and that's one of the things that we've learned here on this podcast, that you have to go from, uh, from, from awareness um, to, um, to an understanding, you know, so that you can, you know, you have to go through, you have to go through this, um, this cognitive process, which then triggers an emotional process, which then triggers a, you know, a physical process, right? And if you never process through this to ultimately master the skills and the understanding about Lyme disease, awareness itself is not enough, right? It's, it's just simply not enough. Even somebody as smart as you are, and even somebody who had the, you know, the 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 type of education you had at one of the best universities uh, in the U.S., uh, you still didn't have enough information to take action on the information. In fact, you didn't even have enough information to really understand it, right? You, you just had this, this general awareness, right? Yeah. And maybe some misinformation too. Like I remember it being really thrown off the fact that it was December. Like, why would I have something like that in December? That's not the right time of year. And right. uh, I remember thinking there's things that didn't make sense when looking back, but then a lot of things that did make sense as far as that could have been my exposure. Um, and the fact that I was treated with doxycycline, um, felt awful initially on the treatment, but it seemed like side effects of the treatment. And I never do well on antibiotics. I'm allergic to most of them. So it never really like fully added up until, um, I was at a conference for Morgellons disease because that's really how my symptoms started developing was into massive brain fog. So after graduating with my microbiology degree, um, all of a sudden I couldn't even remember my address. Like I moved to Los Angeles and I couldn't remember what address my new, my mail should be delivered to. And just all sorts of weird things that kept being pointed out to me that really made me question what is going on. And then as I got more and more um, ill and started presenting with really strange skin symptoms, that's really where I started, I hit my first wall of, oh my gosh, what's going on? 
luckily I have really caring parents. So my mom actually flew in to see me and saw how ill I was. And um, I feel blessed to have found the doctors that I did back then who were very, very much under the radar, hidden in their practice, but had some information on what could be going on. And there was no connection to Lyme disease then at all. Yeah, so I'm wondering, Dr. Day, before before we get into the second set of doctors, you did see a set of doctors in Dallas who seemingly appropriately treated you with antibiotics, right? And, and I know you said you had some challenges with antibiotics, and we'll, we, I'd like to explore that with you. Before we get there, um, it seems to me that they gave you the right medication, right? Uh, you know, for- If you look at the standard protocol, right? Yeah, it seems so. Why? 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 Do, at, at any point when you were treating with the, the the medical staff at the hospital in Dallas before you took the plane uh, to um, Hawaii, uh, did anyone say, hey, we're treating you, you know, you're not then Dr. Day, but hey, Courtney Day, we're, we're, we're treating you with uh, with a prescription of, uh, of of antibiotics because we believe you may have Lyme disease. Was that was that ever discussed? I mean, why were they giving you, why were no, they giving you this they, medication? They said, we don't know what you have but we're afraid you have an infection. So we're going to give you a course of antibiotics is what I specifically remember. And I remember asking them specifically if they thought it could be ringworm because I knew that was more of an antifungal treatment would be needed. And they're like, no, we don't think this is ringworm. So yeah. But do, you, do you know how long you took antibiotics for? That part I can't remember. And I couldn't get my full medical record because it was so long after, um, when I had realized that maybe I should look at that. Uh, but it was long enough that it was my entire vacation, which I think maybe was like 10 days at least. Okay, good. I mean, it's you know, certainly certainly not optimal if you're going to select to use a course of antibiotics for this. We, generally, it should be longer than that, but better than, you know, some doctors who think that, um, you know, you can, you know, you can get uh, a benefit from you know one dose or or one day's worth of uh, of uh, of docs. It might have been longer. I had a very aware mother that, like I told you, she wasn't going to let me get on a plane without going to an ER first. So at least she wasn't aware of Lyme disease necessarily, but she was aware of like infections and making sure things are treated right. correctly. So, and you and you were aware of infections because she was there with me, and I remember her fighting for me. Um, like being like, we're not going to get on a plane without her getting treated. If you're telling me there's a chance she has an infection and stuff like that, so. So let's talk about the flight. Uh, the you know um, one of the things that we we often talk about in in this podcast is the immunosuppressive nature of flying, right? And that that many people in this community are afraid to fly, and certainly afraid to fly unless they take some precautions. Um, of, of getting ready so that they're, you know, the, the immunos Im immunosuppressive, I can say that word, uh, yeah. nature of flying. So, so do you think flying shortly after you had this, uh, had this, um, uh, um, this rash um, played a role in, um, in suppressing your immune response to the bacteria that your body was uh, fighting off? Perhaps. Um... At one point I was having to fly quite a lot for work and school and because my parents live far away um, and was pretty aware of just how much flights can affect you. So I remember I was wearing like an ozonator around my neck and a mask before anybody wore a mask. And 
took, took more precautions flying in general. I was the person who always opted out of trying to walk through the scanners. I mean, they hated me in the airport. But um, looking back, I was like, wow, I was just really smart in some ways and ahead of my time. Um, I've always been a little bit that way, almost like the person who sees everything before everyone else. Um, yeah, and, and, and you, but Dr. Day, yeah, you're also my, my brother. My brother also had Lyme disease, and that's really where the flights became more of a parent issue. He got dysautonomia from, um, well, he had multiple co-infections as well, but it affected him so severely that they almost landed a plane. Um, and so he was traumatized to the point where I remember he was on a plane and yeah, he just panicked so much they had to let him off the plane before the flight took off, and he's never flown again. Um, and I actually had a flight where I blacked out and passed out in the middle of uh, walking down the, the aisle. And the, the pilot wanted to land the plane then. And looking back, that was before I was ever diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I think it might have had something to do with it. I had really, really weird circulation issues at the time. So I remember what I had done is fallen asleep on the plane, uh, woke up, and my legs were a little bit tingly and numb. So I thought, oh, I'll stand up and try to walk it off. And that took me straight down to the floor. <laughs> so Wow. wow. So let, wait, we, I, I can't let, you know, every time you drop a little nugget here, I can't let that go, right? So you, so you brought yeah. her disease as well. Yeah. So this whole journey was a hard one for me because my brother had Lyme disease really severely to the point where it, was a huge problem for my entire family in that um, he had more of the neurological symptoms. And so um, it started to become to a point where um, no one else in the family could really even handle him because of the amount of rage that he would have. Um, and they would just call the police. And so I ended up being this middleman almost between my family and my brother in this whole dynamic because I wasn't there full time with the family, I was away. But I was close enough with my brother that he had enough trust that I could try to navigate all of this. So um, it was really hard for me when I remember being at the Morgellons conference and learning that Morgellons was related to Lyme disease because I had seen what my brother had gone through already. And it was just so, so hard, especially because my family was in Texas. So he lost his doctor during his treatment. They pulled the doctor's license who was treating him. And so I really think if his doctor could have really finished the treatment, that maybe he would have had more success. But just trying to pick up all those pieces as a student in naturopathic medicine school at the same time as learning, oh, this is probably what I'm going through too, I remember was a lot. So um, I was so thankful that I had found good professors and mentors to really guide me not only professionally on how do you handle all of this, but like personally and yeah, um, even yeah. so that so really was, helped, helped me figure out my path. Yeah. yeah. Was your brother diagnosed before or after you were diagnosed? Before. How long before? Uh, maybe a couple years before. I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, it was long enough before that he had already gone down the hole route of IV antibiotics and um, had a bunch of treatment responses and failures and responses and failures. And um, 
it was an eye opener just watching him go through what I thought was really good Lyme literate treatment, but then not responding like you would typically want a patient to respond at all. So, so, so and, and again, I want to I certainly don't want you to tell your brother's story, but just to, to the extent that it's impacting the new, was your brother diagnosed with Lyme disease before or after you saw the bullseye rash on your leg? After. So, um, the bullseye rash from my leg was when I was in still at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in college. And then after college is when I moved down to Los Angeles and um, I got much worse. Looking back, I really think it was because of mold exposure moving down to the LA area that got me into a situation where um, the doctors who took my saw me at that time told my mom that they needed to, my family needed to take me home. I needed to quit my job. And that the patients that he had seen that were in the state that I was, about half of them had committed suicide at that point in time. So my mom was just terrified. And I remember I had to pack everything and get out in one day. And it was traumatic for me. But looking back, I'm so thankful she made me do that because I didn't realize I was in such a toxic exposure. All right. So, and I want to talk about that, but let's say, I want to say with the, the line that we're developing first with you and your brother and, and the relationship between uh, your, your diagnoses. So after your brother was diagnosed with Lyme disease, did you then think back to your bullseye rash and think perhaps you were suffering from Lyme disease? Exactly. Yeah. I remember being in um, a Morgellons disease conference where doctors were presenting these findings of their connections between Lyme disease and Morgellons disease and just being like, oh my gosh, this is, this is not, um, this is not a good connection, even though it is a good connection because um, I've just seen so, so much of what my brother has gone through. And then not only that, heard so many other stories like his because he started becoming more active on social media. Um, but I did think right back to the bullseye rash and my mom was sitting next to me at that conference. So I remember talking to her like, don't you remember we went to the ER, you missed the flight. And it was so memorable for both of us because it was timed right next to that vacation that we had yeah. a lot of memories in that memory bank about it. Now, do you and your brother have similar strains and similar co-infections that could lead you to conclude that perhaps you have congenital Lyme disease, you and your brother, or do you have very different strains of um, of um, the uh, Lyme bacteria or, or Borrelia and different co-infections? That is a really good question. And I've been trying to figure that out for my family um, because the more that I heard about the connection to Lyme disease, the more family stories started to come out. And Part of the reason my mom was so interested in medicine and worked at the hospital was my grandmother was a nurse. She was a Navy nurse and she was grew up in Pennsylvania and she was grew up in an orphanage um, that at the time was almost famous for the fact that about half of the children at the orphanage had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And so um, my mom told me how she remembers clearly how upset my grandma was when they stopped offering gold injections as a treatment because it helped her so much. Um, so she goes, my mom goes, oh my gosh, this is making more sense. Um, and she, my mom even recalls, but is not quite sure if this is completely accurate, that 
my uncle, my one of my grandmother's sons was diagnosed with cat scratch fever shortly after birth. Um, so that would have been back in the 50s sometime. So your family has certainly had a lot of contact with certainly, well, if you didn't know, I, I do want to share with you that the number one state for Lyme disease diagnosis is Pennsylvania. There's more Lyme in Pennsylvania than anywhere else. Shocking to me as a Long Islander and a New Yorker that Pennsylvania could have more Lyme disease than we have here in New York, but they do. Yeah. Um, and your grandmother's, of course, from the state where there was the greatest wow. amount of, of Lyme disease. You have you now have a, a biological uncle. Is that her brother um, who is also diagnosed with her a... Son, her son was diagnosed with cat scratch fever after she gave birth to him is the story. And then I also have another uncle who's her son, her youngest son. Um, his, he's in long-term memory care right now for advanced um, prefrontal temporal dementia. And I actually did some Lyme disease testing on him and he came back with all of the co-infections, every single one. Wow. Um, he lives in Lake Tahoe, California. And my brother lived with my uncle at, in Lake Tahoe, California at the time when he got really sick. Um, he doesn't remember a tick bite either, but he was working at the river at a rafting company and spraying toxic chemicals on rafts to clean them at the time where he just completely fell on his face. So he went from riding mountain bikes to not being able to get out of bed um, and was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, which was interesting because it really brought me to looking at the first chronic fatigue syndrome research because it was there in Incline Valley, California, Nevada area. So who knows? I think that really the more I hear people's stories and especially people from the East Coast, like I don't have a connection to Pennsylvania. My family's been on the West Coast for a while, but one of the uncles moved back to Long Island. So I'd go to visit him in the summers and I'm a pretty well-traveled person. And I think that's how a lot of people are nowadays that we have more travel opportunities. Um, so in my own case, I remember being very confused because Morjohn's disease was this new thing. And I had been to New Zealand and lived, and I stayed with the Maori Indians for a couple weeks. I had been to Australia and cut myself up with the Great Barrier Reef. So I had quite a lot of exposures that I remember when I sat down with a toxicologist and went over them all. She was just like, oh my gosh, you're just, <laughs> you just gave someone really hard homework. Right, so, and, and I do want to talk about, I want to talk about what I call uh, here at Think Bootcamp, the chronic line triangle, but we're going to, I'm going to ask you to possible almost like to say one more question about your brother. Uh, you okay. said your brother, your brother was dealing with a lot of rage issues, right? And you said that your uncle had uh, been diagnosed with cat scratch fever from his, from his, almost his birth, right? Mm -hmm. So um, was your brother ever, ever diagnosed with Bartonella? And do you believe it may have been Bart rage that he was suffering from rather than Lyme rage or a combination of, uh, of, of all of the above? Yeah, he was diagnosed with all of the Borrelia, Bartonella and Babesia and um, what seemed to be the case was that his rage issues um, would correlate with things on his skin that were Bartonella-like signs. So I remember he had the red striae stretch marks. Um, um, I remember him showing some Bartonella skin signs to me when I was pre-med before I knew what they were. 
<laughs> some of them are in sensitive areas and I'm like whoa hey bro like <laughs> but looking back it was a lot of the clinical Bartonella signs um and symptoms and uh he was one of the people who really taught me a lot about Babesia too, because that was one of his main co-infections that for him seemed to take the one of the long, I don't even know if he is really treated for that fully, but um, taught me a lot of how that can affect the nervous system. And so he was a patient, one of the first patients I knew of that was diagnosed with POTS and has gone to more cardiology workups than I would ever want to go to in my life. Poor guy. So you so you have you have Lyme swirling around your family. I mean, it's just sort of it's 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 just been a part of uh, of of your your ex family's experience for generations at this point. Well, uh, not everyone. That's the interesting part. That's why I'm always interested in like what makes a person sick, and is it microbes or terrain, and how how does it affect you if you've been treated or haven't been treated? Because, for example, my mom's youngest brother, I think I said it. She. So my grandmother had four kids um, and the youngest of the sons. So this would have been after she had been through some treatment. I told you she was getting some treatment that would have been antimicrobials. I don't know if that's it, but one uncle doesn't seem to be very much affected by tick-borne illness at all. Um, and he, he also had the experience of getting hospitalized and treated with a bunch of IV antibiotics during that part of his life. So it makes me wonder if somehow he was treated and not known or she, my grandma was treated and um, somehow it's not affecting that one particular part of our family. So this has always been something that's really fascinated me and kept me in the whole game because I have this like family history to look at and can see a difference in my family members, the ones who have gone through more substantial treatment. Um, and then the generations after that person getting through treatment. So I think there's something to all of this, but oh, for sure. I have the right perfect protocol. Like when you were saying you were looking yourself for a treatment protocol with your own health experience and couldn't find, you know, just exactly one protocol. That's one thing we really face. And I think at this point in time, especially with co-infections like Bartonella, we haven't gotten a lot of recognition and even though I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, they didn't do a great job at all of covering the pleomorphic aspect of disease or the chronicity. And I think that's really what we're lacking in a lot of our scientific understanding right now is this acceptance of pleomorphism and chronicity, or maybe if not, if it's not chronicity, persistence on some level. Right. So help us, help us, you, you, you use two, two, very scientific, very doctorish terms. So why don't you why don't you break those terms down for us? Because I do want to I do want to talk to you a little bit about the chronic Lyme triangle that we that we develop here at at, at Take Boot Camp. Because I think one of the flaws of traditional medicine is that they're always looking for one cause, one symptom, right? Or one cause, yeah. illness, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 one of the reasons why we think those of you who are who are trained in um, in the uh, naturopathic arena. Uh, generally have um, a better foundation for diagnosing these, um, you know, polymicrobial infections uh, that that are, are are part microbe, part terrain. Uh, terrain, I, I think, being broken down into um, into 
your, your microbiome as well as your, your genetics. Um, and then, of course, we have these environmental exposures, which you started to tease as well, right? So that's one of the reasons why we call it a triangle. And, and I just shared with you that when I was doing some of the um, pre-podcast uh, uh, research on you, one of the things that I saw from uh, some of your work is that you are you are someone who studies uh, the environmental, genetic, and pathogenic um, um, uh, elements of disease, right? I mean, you 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 are looking at that same kind of triangle that we seem to be looking at, right? I I saw I saw I saw some particle with you even before we began to interview you. So why don't you uh, why don't you first break down those two those two terms that you use and let, and build that into what I would call Doctor Day's triangle, chronic illness triangle um, uh, of uh, of environmental, genetic, and pathogenic. Uh, elements of, of chronic disease. Right. Well, um, I think I hit quite a bit on the environmental and pathogenic points already. Um, but we do have, you know, some biological components, or if you want to call that genetic or inherited, or at this point, I'm even convinced that maybe it's, you know, energetic patterns that we're inheriting, um, ancestral type of patterns. Um, I think that all plays a role. Uh, one of the first tools that my brother and I worked together on when he was ill and trying to figure out this whole piece of the puzzle was um, a website called Genetic Genie, where you can upload your 23andMe raw data and look at genetic SNPs that have to do with methylation and detoxification. And we were one of the first websites who really made that available to public for free. So I remember it being kind of like what you were talking about with this podcast, that at first nobody used it. And there was like a few people downloading the program. And then all of a sudden, hundreds and thousands of people were interested. And I almost hit the floor when I was in my genetics class at National College of, or National University of National of Naturopathic Medicine. So at NUNM, we have a genetics class and all of a sudden the professor starts talking about geneticgenie.org as a website in a way you could look at methylation and detox SNPs. So I almost fainted. I'm like, whoa, wait, why is my website being presented in my medical school class? Um, but looking back, it was really a novel idea and one that has been now really expanded on. And I'm so glad it has because I think that's just one way we can look in at our inheritance and genetics and not only in a way that is um that helps us understand perhaps why we might be more prone to getting sick but also helps us figure out tools to help go around that and make sure we use the best of our genetics so, so talk, talk to us about genetic snips and what impact you think they may have on uh on our ability to fight <laughs> off microbial uh, infections? Interesting question. Yeah, um, I remember we started with MTHFR because that one had the most research at the time. And my brother Kyle is really um, into making sure that we present data and things that have research. So um, we based the panel off of a lot of the methylation understanding at the time, which has really developed since. And um, I don't know if methylation has to do with why people always get sick, but it seems to be a correlation. There's a correlation between 
chronic illness or persistence of disease in patients with certain genetic SNPs. So um, Dr. Bob Miller was one doctor who really caught my attention because not only did he understand the methylation and detox SNPs, but he then correlated it with clinical data. And, um, and a lot of his observations were the same observations I was seeing in my patient population at the time. And really were the same things that had gotten my interest in developing a panel to begin with. So um, it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and I knew that wasn't the whole thing, like the whole piece of the puzzle, but maybe a very important one. And um, it led me into looking more into things like B12 and folate and how they can affect not only our own bodies, but pathogens. And so that opened my eyes more to oh, chronic persistence babesia and all these pathogens could be affected by our nutrient status. So even though it might be really good for us to have all these nutrients, we don't necessarily want to feed them to pathogens and how it's this huge balance between giving ourselves the nutrients that we need, but then also making sure that we're not feeding into the persistence of the microbiome or right. the parts of our microbiome that are not serving us. So, and so, we, so we, we don't want to feed the bugs. Yeah. So that whole part is interesting. And I see a lot of research coming back to that now. Um, current, the last paper I just read was like talking about using glycolysis and that process in microbes as a way to target them and prevent their growth um, in the future of non-antibiotic therapies. So they were talking about certain cancer agents that could do that or cancer therapies. So once makes me wonder if we're going to get more into more crossovers between our cancer drugs and our antibiotics. So talk to us about the difference between genetics and epigenetics. Um, and then after you talk to us about the difference between genetics and epigenetics, talk to us about SNPs and where they fall into uh, genetic SNPs, where they fall into coded versus uncoded genes. Okay. Um, well, when you're looking at SNPs, you're not looking at a full gene sequence. You're looking at what's called a single nucleotide polymorphism. That's what a SNP stands for. So it's a single change in the DNA sequence. And so when you're looking at 23andMe data, you're not looking at full gene genome sequencing. That's something completely different. Um, but you you can look in at that data and see if there's certain points in a gene where there's been a change. And those genes are coded for different purposes. And so um, when you're looking at how a cell operates, um, you can uh, look at different ways that that cell can um, methylate its genome and transcribe the genes. And then the way that those polymorphisms are going to affect the protein functions are based on those changes. So for example, um, if you had uh, a normal working gene for MTHFR and say that could just um, convert. It's hard to explain this. Sorry, I'm a visual person too. <laughs> so I do a much you, better job. This so, than I have. 
some sort of visual to look at or use. Um, but the idea is that with single changes in of, of the gene, and so polymorphic changes of the gene will affect the rate that the enzyme can have an action in the body. So to activate certain nutrients, for example, for MTHFR to have um, folic acid to be converted into active folate, there's multiple steps that are needed. And so you can look at genes that are involved in that step. And one of the most important genes happens to be um, the gene that takes homocysteine to methionine. And so there's different genes that will affect these enzymes at different rates. And that's what you're looking at when you're looking at methylation is the person's inherited ability to create bioactive substances from the nutrients that they eat mostly or vitamins that they take. And so what I, what I learned from it all in the end was how important it is to support our liver in production of things like glutathione and how some of us are limited in our ability to convert or create glutathione. And then also how important it is to, instead of taking folic acid as a supplement, especially during pregnancy as a way to support um, nutrients for a fetus, this is where it becomes really important um, to instead use more active versions of the folate or ones that are not combined with toxic chemicals. So for B12, there's different types of cobalamin and cyanocobalamin is um, one that is harder for our bodies to convert in, as far as its activity, but it also can um, cause toxicity issues at the same time as helping our detox pathways. So it's just this eye opener that oh, wow, I have to really pay attention to what type of vitamins I take. And not only that, it was like a really good lesson in why you should eat beets and carrots and leafy greens and all your good vegetables, as well as get good sources of choline and protein. So it helped me understand nutrition in a way that way beyond that way that I even was presented at that time in medical school. And it was cool to see how nutrition started to kind of really adapt a lot of this in its teachings. Okay. So now let me ask you another question. I want to say on the genetic prong of the genetic pathogenic um, and environmental triangle that we started talking about. So do you believe that microbes can change? I don't um, hold on. No, it's okay. The dog, the dog is welcome to participate. He's not going to stop. <laughs> That's okay. Um, we, uh, we, we like everyone to participate, including our dogs. Um, so, so tell us, tell, uh, tell us whether or not you think that pathogens can change your genetic code. Meaning, can it turn? Um, do you believe that the pathogen uh, or the pathogen load can turn off genes? And, and do you believe that pathogens can recode genes? Well, pathogens, depending on the pathogen, right? Like viral pathogens, for example, that's how they operate is they integrate into our genome. So um, yeah, this is a really interesting uh, part of medicine. And there are some diseases that are randomly genetically inherited 
meaning at some point in your life, you get a mutation and that will affect your biochemistry. Um, JAK2 comes to mind. The JAK2 mutation is like that, um, where you'll, you're not necessarily have inherited that mutation, but you can acquire it in your lifetime. So I don't even think we fully understand why patients in inherit, or sorry, acquire something like that. Um, but there are just genes that have been linked, so. Right, so it could be pathogenic, it could be pathogenic, right? I mean, it, right. it may be that, you know, our, our adaptability that has allowed us to become the dominant species to change physiologically and to change neurologically is something that these, uh, that, that, that these polymicrobial infections are using against us. It's causing, it's, it's changing our code. It's causing us to acquire uh, different diseases as a result of changing changing the very essence of who we are or changing our genetic code. Again, it's an, an interesting thing to think about, right? So let's now move over to the um, the pathogenic element of what we were talking about. And one of the one of the folks we interviewed recently um, argued that there are five different types of microbes, bacteria, viruses, prote um, protozoa, mold, and yeast, right? Um, and he was arguing that we have to look at all of these, all of these pathogens as part of the analysis of um, what we have to treat and how we have to help our immune system, right? And and and, and I was always sort of um, thinking of mold and yeast in from the standpoint of of, of the environment and environmental toxins as opposed to uh, pathogenic um, toxins. But give, give me your perspective on on those different types of microbes and what role do you think these different microbes played in the development of your illness. Okay, um, well, so it was really a quite an eye-opening journey going through all of this, to be honest. When I first, um, when I first learned of Morgellons disease, I learned that it was linked to delusions of parasitosis. And I remember thinking that's really weird. Like why would any doctor think I have a delusion of a parasite when I've never mentioned the word parasite ever? I had skin lesions and that wouldn't heal. And I had filaments or fibers that you could see if you used a microscope um, coming out of the lesions. And so um, I didn't even realize that my skin lesions had anything strange in them until my mom had bought me a dermatoscope for Christmas. Um, she thought it would be a neat gift. And I remember receiving it thinking this doesn't have very high magnification. I don't know what I'm going to use this for. And wow, I was blown away by what I learned when I first opened that microscope box and started looking. So it was an experience that I still to this day don't quite understand everything that I saw because it just so happened to be a time where I was very electromagnetically sensitive and so not only did I see strange filaments and fibers coming out of my skin but I actually had recorded some of them with movement and electrostatic properties and has so much electrostatic changes in my own body that I had a pathologist and a toxologist both interested in doing research and studying me at the time. So I felt like this weird, like all of a sudden I entered this state of being a weird guinea pig at the same time as having 
really strange things happening in my body. And for some reason, everybody telling me that I have delusions of parasites, even though I never mentioned the word parasite. So that was what made me think, okay, maybe I do have a parasite if people keep thinking, <laughs> saying this. And so I had in my mind that the whole entire time in medical school, like, does this have to do with parasites? I started going to Chinese medicine courses and they had a description called goo syndrome that seemed to fit a lot of what I was going through. And in Chinese literature, they said it was related to chronic persistent like infections, parasites, and there was even a demonic component to it. So that was the first time that I was really brought to light that this might have been in medical texts for a really long time, but described in such a way that when they tried to modernize medicine, a lot of it was thrown out because it was so related to demonic possession. And now after hearing so many patient stories, all of this makes so much more sense to me and going through my own journey because um, the first time I found a parasite was when in myself was when I was in uh, the lab in medical school, we were doing your analysis on ourselves and we both, we had partners. So I remember that I was in the weird group because me and my partner both found a parasite my partner found a hookworm in her blood and I found what looked like a fluke or maybe a schizosoma, a full parasite in an egg or multiple eggs in my urine. And we were both blown away. I remember sitting there an hour later than we should be in the lab trying to get good pictures of it on my iPhone because <laughs> I knew nobody would believe me <laughs> or thought that nobody would believe me considering this delusions of parasitosis thing was a real diagnosis. So yeah, it was, that was my first experience of being like, oh wait, I might have a parasite. And I couldn't really find much help, even though I had all this information and a picture and everything. For some reason, doctors did not want to prescribe me an antiparasitic for it. So I ended up going to the Chinese medicine side of things and getting treated for them through er herbal treatment for schizosomiasis and responded really well to that, thank God. Um, but subsequently have found doctors who then would prescribe me antiparasitics. So I've learned even more as I've taken antiparasitics and I found for myself, and I don't know if all patients are like this, but a lot of the parasites that I realized I had, I didn't know I had them until I really started treating them. So it's kind of like a catch-22. It's like, don't know you have it until you start treating it. So well, you, 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 how do you know to treat it? <laughs> yeah, you, but you, did, you, did, you didn't know you had it because you spent an hour taking pictures of it from your urine test. So you had a little insight that you know, the average person wouldn't have. Yeah. So let's, let's now talk about environment, right? And uh, one of the things you shared with us is that uh, your mom had to pack you up and pull you out of a particular place where you were living at one point because you were exposed to mold. So talk to us about mold and environmental toxins and what impact they have on a healing journey. Yes, I did mention that mold was, I think, my first crashing point. Um, although at that time, I did have quite a lot of symptoms of schizosomiasis. I remember being in LA and not being able to go anywhere because it took too long. Like I couldn't make it from point A to point B in my car without a bathroom. 
And the most traumatizing day of my life was having to pull over on the side of the LA freeway because I couldn't hold it anymore. And um, so that was, and it, the reason why I brought up parasites is that was one of the things I saw noticed was missing from that list that you had just put together. And I noticed a lot of doctors miss this whole aspect and kind of ignore it, where I think that it might be one of the reasons why a lot of patients have predominant symptoms or don't ever fully get better. So, um, Can you distinguish for me the difference between protozoa and parasites? Yeah, so protozoas are a type of parasite, but they would be organisms that are typically more um, microscopic or smaller in nature than some other larger parasites would be. Um, so things like Babesia that we know live in the red blood cells, so that's a protozoal parasite, or things like Giardia, which is a common GI parasite, those things we have better tests for, so they're more readily diagnosed in patients. Um, we do have ways to test for larger parasites like helminths, but a lot of that is done through ova and parasites in the stool. Um, I mentioned to you I found mine in the urine, but to be able to find a parasite in the urine, usually you have to look at it within an hour of spinning it down and use a special filtration membrane. So there's a multiple steps that are preventing patients from getting adequate diagnosis in the United States, just because their samples don't typically get looked at by a parasitologist immediately. We don't have a system set up like that. So I was super frustrated as a doctor when I could take pictures of these parasites, I could diagnose myself, but I couldn't get a single other professional to repeat or confirm these diagnoses. And I even drove myself all the way to Arizona to meet with a parasitologist at his own private practice at his house. And I was blown away that he wouldn't take really take any samples from me. Again, sat, sat me down and tried to explain to me how Morgellons disease is more related to, he thought, neurocutaneous toxicity than it would be to any parasite. And my argument was, hey, if you're saying neurocutaneous toxicity opens the door to parasites, then shouldn't we be at least diagnosing the parasites too? It, it would blow my mind that a parasitologist didn't want to diagnose parasites. That is, that is, uh, that is mind blowing. So let's talk about environment. How are you defining environment in uh, your triangle of uh, um, pathogenic environmental and genetic elements of uh, of disease? I think environment is maybe the number one factor for a lot of cases. If it's not mold, then, um, well, I've seen so many patients change dramatically by changing location, including my brother. When he was severely ill, my family, I didn't go because I couldn't make the flight. I it was too long of a flight from where I needed to fly from, but my whole family went to Bermuda and my brother went into complete remission without anything, just being in Bermuda. So that taught me a lot that maybe environment can be really affecting us. And I had to move maybe a total of 10 times now throughout this journey because of not just my own home environments getting to a point where the um, water damage was too extreme. But I had patients come to my office complaining of 
um, different insect infestations. And um, I know there's a lot of question between infect infestations or patients being infested with insects that have Morgellons. It was first written in 19, the 1940s that there might be a connection between myiasis or fly larva and Morgellons. Um, and it never really was written about ever since or picked up ever since. Um, but I found that in my own experience that that was one thing that was seeming to be in patients' environments was fly, lots of flies and fly larvae. And not only that, I then got patients coming to me that had evidence of the fly larvae and fly involvement in their skin. And then I also contracted that myself and had to move four times to get into an environment that was not infested with flies. So well, I, I will tell you that this, that's the first, that's the first time we've had that issue service with uh, fly infestation. So uh, please share, share more about that because we've, We've spent a fair amount of time exploring, uh, you know, chemical toxins that you know that uh, you know that humans have not come in contact with uh, through most of our evolution, right? That, that, that right. A, a recent, a recent uh, whether they be metals or other types of toxins that we're coming we're coming in contact with at a you know a a, a high rate, right? Uh, we've we've talked about. Um, um, uh, different types of environmental stresses, social stresses, whether they be from social media or, you know, just sort of living in a high stress environment. We've talked about, you know, um, electromagnetic frequencies and, 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 and the element, the, the impact that that can have on you environmentally. Right. Uh, and how all this is making us more vulnerable to be sick, but this fly larva is a new one. So we, we, we're, we're sort of piling these things on together where the likelihood of us getting sick from a disease like Lyme disease, is substantially higher today than it's ever been through human history. And in large part, it's because we're just simply more vulnerable, right? We've been getting bitten by ticks as long as we've existed. Humans have been getting by, bitten by ticks as long as we've existed. We've been, we've been um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, managing the Lyme bacteria as part of our microbiome for as long as we've had humans, right? But the reason I believe we're, we're getting sicker at a greater rate now than we ever did from these diseases is because of the, you know, the environmental elements of making us more vulnerable. Uh, so give me your reaction to that, to, to the MF issue, to the, um, you know, to the, um, to the uh, chemical toxin loads that we're, we're all carrying um, and, and to, uh, you know, and to the stresses of modern life. Uh, whether it be you know the polarization uh, uh, that that we're dealing with politically um, and the um, you know and the the challenges associated with social media and mass media and how that is making us more vulnerable as well. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. But it actually hits on a lot of the points of what I went through when I relapsed. I kind of I I all admit I hit a wall with. My myiasis patients, when I realized I brought it home with me. Um, so maybe just telling that story will bring a lot to light. And Please do, I, yeah. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this because it's so much now part of my story. But I think in general, I love that this is the tick podcast, but I think we need to open our eyes more to other vectors and insects and paying attention to those as well because that was the most important lesson I've learned so far personally and professionally 
is that although we pay a lot of attention to ticks and bullseye rashes, and that's what the county wants to know when I'm sending them my report that someone just got diagnosed, right? Right. That really what I'm seeing more coming back on some of these reports are things like louse born relapsing fever, which are spread by lice. Bartonella can be spread by lice or fleas. And some of my patients responded to best treatments for leishmaniasis, which could be spread by sand flies. And the leishmaniasis co-infection and differential diagnosis came more to my radar um, after seeing a patient who was the wife of an infectious disease specialist. Um, And she was also happened to be one of my myiasis patients. So I learned a lot about myiasis. My first case was your typical bot fly, big, large bot fly, easy to see, um, more easy to diagnose. The patient flew up to see me from California just because she was so nervous to go see a normal doctor about it. Even I kept trying to get her to go to University of San Diego or something like that. Um, And then the subsequent myiasis patients were completely different. They were... It was interesting that I got seemed to get two patients within a week span, both complaining of what I think were symptoms to do with myiasis and fly infestation in their homes. But these were tiny flies and I couldn't see the obvious signs like you would of larva in the skin. So I remember one patient was in her urogenital area mostly. So I sent her to our gynecologist and she said, I've never seen inflammation like this before. I don't know what it is. And if her, if I didn't have the help of an infectious disease specialist as a partner in all of this, I don't know if I would have handled the whole case as well because it was very confusing. And it wasn't until I went all the way back to 1946, the original paper published on Morgellons disease, that I realized, oh, this is actually written about in this paper. And they had cases in London and France. Um, and these patients seem to have severe symptoms that sometimes would resolve and then relapse and then resolve and relapse, or some of them were more chronic. So, but they weren't really well described. And it was 1946, so there's not great treatments descriptions there either. Um, and so I started just asking the patients to collect flies from their home, and I sent them to Texas A&M because. Um, the same, a week later, after I established two cases, larva ended up showing up in my dog's water bowl in my apartment at home. And I did bring my dog back and forth to the clinic. So there's a chance that perhaps I thought that maybe they, that my dog brought something home. So I went to my vet and they took the larva and told me that Texas A&M does the best job at diagnosing um, or speciating these kinds of things. So they sent the larva in. And what blew my mind was that the larva that was sent in from my vet seemed to match the same types of species that my patients were sending in as flies. And then not only that, but later I ended up getting foot pain and my own symptoms of myiasis. So I don't know if I really would have believed all of this, to be honest, if I didn't have all this myself and actually see flies come out of the skin after applying things like ivermectin lotion. (laughs) It's just not, it's not something anybody wants to go through or talk about, or it's like living in a horror movie. So 
yeah, I can see how patients are just completely dismissed. Um, one of the patients actually with this came to me from the psych ward. They dismissed her from the psych ward, realizing she wasn't fully psychotic. And uh, I was the only doctor that she could find to really take on her case at that point, because um, at that point she had hired lawyers to take on some of the legal aspects of going through that amount of misdiagnosis. So a lot of doctors were afraid to take her on. So, you know, one of the, I think one of the challenges that we have with this, um, this disease, Lyme disease, um, is that, you know, we, we take this allopathic approach of trying to find one microbe for one symptom for one treatment, um, when there are just so many different permutations of, of, um, what is ultimately resulting in chronic illness, right? Which is why, um, you know, I wanted to go over this triangle with you where we have, we have genetics and epigenetics, right? Um, that are going to be different based on in part, um, you know, what has been passed on to us by our, by our parents, right? In part are going to be different based on the environment that we've been raised in and that we're living in, because we know that our, our, our genetic expressions are going to be different despite them being coded. And in some cases, our, our, our genes are going to be altered based on what is happening in our environment. We then are going to have many, many microbes in our system, right? Some of which uh, are are possibly passed on to us congenitally. Some of us are going to be some are going to be picked up based on environmental factors. Some are going to be passed on. I mean, we're going to receive based on tick bites and other types of vectors biting us, and we're going to have this whole <laughs> mix of stuff in our microbiome. And then we're going to have this diversity of environmental experiences that we've had whether they be the EMFs that we're coming in contact with, it, it's going to be, um, it's going to be the, um, you know, the, the uh, chemicals that we're harboring, the exposure to mold or to yeast, or, I mean, when you put yeah. it together, all of these different permutations of, of what could come together to result in you becoming chronically ill, if we don't have um, a set of tools that allows us to diagnose, you know, each individual person, it seems to me that it's going to be uh, impossible to treat. And the mistake that we, I think we're making in the Lyme community is we're looking for this magic bullet that is going to be able to get everyone with a Lyme disease diagnosis better. And I just don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to be possible. I don't think there'll ever be a vaccine. I don't think it's ever going to be a treatment. I just don't think that's possible when you have so many different permutations that are coming together which are resulting in people uh, becoming chronically ill. What, what are your thoughts about um, my concerns with that? Yeah, the whole vaccine issue is an interesting one and so many, for so many reasons. Um, and we do have a history there of it not going well the first time they tried um, for a Lyme vaccine. But Vaccination in general as a way to prevent disease has its downsides. And I hear about that a lot in my Lyme population to the point where I have, I think probably more vaccine injured or skeptical patients than perhaps your normal population. And um, I'm a vaccine injured patient myself. One of the, maybe one of the first recognized as a child to the point where I wasn't fully vaccinated. Um, per doctors at Stanford University's orders um, because the risk-benefit ratio, I was too high of a risk. 
Um, and so vaccination as a solution, even though it can sometimes help decrease prevalence of disease in the population, might not be the way to go always individually. Although that choice is so hard to make. I had a professor at Cal Poly who treated polio, decided not to get vaccinated for polio because um, he learned he had some natural protection, a natural immunity to it. But then later in his life ended up developing polio. polio. So he, I remember him being one of the people who really stood out in my life that made the vaccine controversy even more controversial. Um, and then as far as all the, all of the factors that are affecting our health, that's really what I've learned more when I got hit the second time with, I felt like a plague of flies and infestation and, um, tried to use insecticides at some points just to get things under control, but that's also toxic for myself. And so balancing that whole trying to prevent illness, but not create Ill more illness in the process um, can be really challenging, especially if you're going through crises as severe as I was or some of my patients go through. Um, so for example, I got bit by a spider as I was trying to kill everything else, I must have really pissed that spider off. And that really set off my symptoms even more. So I just remember being like, am I gonna make it when I realized I had so much toxicity from trying to kill these insects, um, had gone through a recent mold exposure, had to take things like ivermectin and things I normally don't try to dose too often to get through it all. And I could feel that toxicity build up in my body as I was going through it. And one of the best tools I had found previously in my healing was detox ionic foot baths. So I started doing those more and that's just what blew my mind, like to another level. Um, I read on Amazon that someone saw parasites in their foot bath when they did it for 90 minutes straight instead of your typical 30 to 60 minutes. And I thought, I've never seen that in clinic. We had people doing them in our clinic, but we never ran the 90 minutes. No way. I'm going to try it out. So I bought the unit that this guy said he had online, and ran it for 90 minutes. And I started seeing the weirdest thing in my foot bath. I didn't know if they're parasites or not, but the more foot baths I did, the weirder stuff came out. And it was a journey like I had never been through before of me being very humbled by the fact that I couldn't identify 90% of everything I saw. And some of the things I saw that I could identify still didn't make complete sense until I maybe started to accept the fact that I was seeing more of a complex biofilm than I could ever even imagine that had multiple elements of my environment in it. So like, for example, I know patients talk about um, sometimes seeing like things like glitter coming from their skin or weird objects with Margellan's disease. But I got to a point where I was able to get that to just start pouring out into the bath, like thousands. So it was, just a phenomenal experience about learning about how toxic I was. And not only that, how I could actually use my own energy to help with how well my body was able to detoxify. So 
Um, in medical school, we learn biofeedback techniques. So ways that you can kind of train your body through biofeedback and observation to be able to have better control over bodily processes. And I feel like I was able to do that through just meditation and watching what was happening in the foot bath and learning how to get myself into certain states of mind, a lot through meditation and chakra work. So I got to a point where I could actually start feeling my chakras. Um, my detox foot bath started to get much clearer, much less toxins. And I just, and then also at the same time, I could just see everything else in my life start to get less toxic, if that makes sense. So it's so interesting, like how much of this journey has been not just on the 3D level, but on the 4D and the 5D level, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And, and you've articulated that really powerfully. So give us, uh, give us a sense of where you are today. How are you doing today? So I'm at a point now where I am very cognizant that stress is a huge component of how well I am doing in my life currently. Um, how are you finding stress in that element of your, um, of your wellness? Well, not just the stress, external stress, but how well I'm able to adapt to that and respond. So I just became a lot more aware of how my body holds on to certain emotions and stressors. And I've learned techniques to release that stress in my body. And what I've learned at the, is at the same time where I release that stress and those emotions are the same times that my body tends to purge toxins or parasites. And so it's been hard because being a practitioner and provider for patients going through this and going through it myself, as you can imagine, has put my nervous system into states of fight or flight or stress. And so I've had to find tools to easily come out of that to just be able to continue to go on. Um, and I really am a big fan now of vagus nerve stimulators and vagus nerve support. So that's one tool that I've used, but I've also realized that I have to balance my life better. So I slowed down my practice when I got sick again. I haven't built back up to the, where I was before when I was fully recovered. And I'm thinking that it might serve myself and my patients better to try to develop more of a way to help patients through maybe like a program or protocol or something like that, even though there is no one set protocol for everybody, but something that can help patients with the whole energetic component more because that's something I really had to learn on my own. And maybe we all have to learn that on our own. Is I always ask myself, like, instead of why is this happening to me? What is this teaching me? And um, the times where I've gotten the most sick and really thought, I don't know if I can make it to tomorrow, were the times where I've also had the biggest epiphanies and have been like the catalyst that I needed in my life to change the way I was doing something, to do something differently. And I think that's what I'm feeling right now is that 
as a whole community around Lyme disease, we need to start doing things differently. We have solutions and answers and more awareness now, but we still have a system that's failing us. So I wanna put more effort into how can we create better systems that serve us rather than ones that limit our ability to heal or limit our ability to help others. All right, so you said that one of the things you had to learn is to distinguish being in the parasympathetic versus the sympathetic expression of your nervous system. And that when you were in the sympathetic expression of your nervous system, you were not able to heal. So give us some examples of, um, of techniques that you're using to first identify when your nervous system is in the sympathetic expression and what are you doing to get your nervous system out of the sympathetic expression so that it's in the parasympathetic expression so that you, you're now not uh, immunosuppressed? Um, good question. I mentioned vagus nerve stimulators. My favorite, favorite vagus nerve stimulator is one that is, um, it's called Zen by Nuvana. I'm not trying to promote it necessarily, but I really like it in the fact that it syncs to music. And throughout all of this, I have found that any therapy that works on the frequency level, whether it be homeopathic or flower essences or like actual craniosacral therapy, um, that tends to help my nervous system the most. And um, I just realized more when I was trying to figure out how do I coach other patients through this, but do it in a way that they don't have to pay a lot of money or like they don't have to go buy the Zen unit necessarily. Um, I realized that just the sound itself creates a pretty powerful effect. Um, and now we have YouTube and podcasts and a lot of free information out there and healers demonstrating their works. So one of my favorite things to do now is just go online and try out different techniques, new sound therapists, um, I mentioned that I traveled to Australia and New Zealand in my undergraduate, and it really stood out to me, some of the practices they had there. And I've always loved the didgeridoo. So, for example, just even listening to the didgeridoo, I noticed can bring me back to a more relaxed state. So I love music. I always have. So maybe that's why I'm drawn to that. But um I first started using the Zen by Nirvana because of the fact that it actually feeds electricity right into your vagus nerve um, through your ear. But the more I think about it, I don't even know if that's necessary. And the times in my life that I felt the best was when I was volunteering as a medical professional for a lot of the concerts in the area. So going out to see music often and just being in that environment of live music, um, I think might've been looking back a big, huge part of my recovery. So I, I think the first level of understanding the importance of the role your emotions play in, uh, in your healing is to first recognize we have a binary brain, right? And our binary brain is going to be expressed either in the sympathetic or the parasympathetic uh, expression and never both. It's going to be one or the other. 
But there are going to be different ways that you're going to be triggered into the sympathetic expression of your nervous system. And when you are triggered into your sympathetic nervous system, you need to learn the techniques that are going to be helpful to you, right? And in your case, you found ways of, of calming down that expression so that you would be untriggered and you would now be fully expressed um, in a resonant way so that you would be able to, you would be able to be thoughtful, you would be able to um, have a healthy energy flow and that you would not be interfering with your um, your um, uh, immuno function, immuno function. And for you, it was calming down the vagus nerve, right? And you were using, you were using frequencies. Uh, many people use humming to do that. Yeah. Um, and sing too. I like to okay. sing. Singing and, and humming. I do correlate stopping singing. So I was a singer professionally, not professionally, but uh, when I was young, I was in tour groups and would go on performances. And throughout college, I even did some choir singing. So there was an exact correlation between when I stopped choir and when I got sick. Okay. Um, so um, do you believe that your vagus nerve was triggering your amygdala, which is the smoke detector in your brain, and that was causing you to be triggered into the fight or flight expression? Um, or do you believe that they were separate? Hmm. In your experience. And I think we should also describe for our audience yeah. that, the, that the vagus nerve is the largest bundle of nerves in our in our body. And it is how we connect our our gut to our brain, right? It's 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 that's the gut gut brain uh, connection. And yeah, there is so many things that can throw off the vagus nerve. So it's not always necessarily just even a fight or flight response. Um, sometimes it's been even structural issues in my body. I've noticed I have Ehlers Danlos syndrome. I know quite a lot of patients have that diagnosis. So there's an overlap with. Lyme disease perhaps. And, um, I never was really diagnosed when I was young, but I got diagnosed when I was at Cal Poly. I didn't believe them when they told me that I was you had EDS. super flexible because my cousin was also a dancer and she was way more flexible than I was. So, uh, tell my dance coach that I'm too flexible. She'll tell you the wrong, that that's wrong. <laughs> that's how I thought. So, um, yeah, I come from a family of dancers and, um, I never thought it was that unusual to have dysautonomia symptoms really, because it was so in my family. I remember being the person who had a note that she could carry around snacks so she doesn't faint. Like if I could eat snacks in class and I fainted so many times on stage that at one time they were like, had a backup for me, like a double. Oh no. But looking back, I really think I was able to control my nervous system more before I say before I got sick. Maybe I was born with this. Who knows? But there was a point in time where I definitely felt like I got sick and couldn't. I remember the big thing was that I was 20. So nobody wanted to listen to me because I, my main complaint was that I couldn't drink alcohol. And they're like, oh, well, you just started trying alcohol. You probably are a person who can't drink alcohol. But I had gone to Europe with my senior class when I was 18. So we drank alcohol there and I was fine. I knew that wasn't it. So there was this big change in me where all of a sudden I couldn't drink alcohol and I couldn't go sing on stage anymore. Like I never had stage fright 
but all of a sudden I had stage fright and it was, it was just really interesting. Like I noticed that my nervous system was affected more first than anything else. And it makes sense to me now that I've read about what they're finding with Lyme disease and acetylcholine. The really good toxicologist I went to, she actually did a test showing that I had acetylcholine receptor blocking and problems with acetylcholine. Um, so, do, so do you believe that uh, it's important, it, it has been a, an important part of your Lyme journey to rebuild your gut so that you would have fewer vagal nerve triggers? Huge, huge, yeah, yeah. I remember at one point I burped all the time and I couldn't eat anything and everyone thought I was anorexic, but really I just felt awful eating food. So why did I want to eat food kind of thing? Um, going gluten-free, I don't know if that was it or not, really helped and I became more quote unquote orthorexic throughout my journey. I remember becoming very cognizant of my diet. And then over time I became looser with my diet. Um, so it was interesting to, to watch all of that, but it was for me very much based on how I felt. Like I could feel the difference based on the food choices that I was making. Okay. Talk to us about um, whether you use anything else to help you um, spend more of your time in the uh, parasympathetic expression of your nervous system, other than resolving your gut issues and being really careful with your diet and being aware of the role that the uh, vagus nerve was playing in triggering you into the sympathetic state and some of the tools you've already defined for us that you were using. Uh, and you did also talk about meditation, which I'd like to circle back to, but are there any other tools that you were using to help you on that piece of your journey? Because you, you said that that was a very, very important part of your healing journey. Is there anything else? Um, there was a point where I was using neural therapy or having that done to me as a treatment. And what is that? Um, it's using crocane and certain points, injection points as a way to regulate organ systems and your autonomic nervous system. Um, and there's specific injections you can use for dysautonomia. And I didn't actually go through any of those types of injections. I had a dramatic response from getting treatment done to my um, navel area where I had a appendectomy scar. So one thing they do with um, prolotherapy is treat scars. And this was based on Dr. Klinghart's teaching of autonomic response therapy, where you can scan the autonomic nervous system in the body to, for interference, and you can check for things like toxins and pathogens. And one of the first things that usually comes up for people if they have past history of surgery or major accidents or scars is a blocking or interference in that area. So based what about on- tattoos? Thing, yeah, my navel system was blocked. And if you think about your navel area, like that's where all your energy is flowing out of. Um, I just remember having this dramatic experience of having them treat that area. Not only my belly button, the way it looked physically changed, but the amount of breath that I could take in changed. Just so much, so many parts of my nervous system seemed to respond to that treatment. 
And it was in such a good time because it was right when I was stepping in as a new doctor. So I just remember feeling like, oh my gosh, yay. I like all of a sudden have this super power that I didn't have before because I was so used to not being able to fully control my nervous system. And I remember going from like a shaky hand, I'd always look at my hand to make sure I could inject patients. And I'd go from some days having shaky hands to like no days having shaky hands by doing prolotherapy and some of the autonomic nervous system work. So that's really powerful. That is, that is really powerful. So are, are there, are there any other, any other tools, um, you know, so th this game, cha game changing um, issue that you were describing for us and the, and the uh, spending more time or all of your time, as much as your time in the parasympathetic expression of the nervous system, any other tools you use to help you on that piece? The first tool I ever really used was infrared therapy. So the toxicologist I went to was a far infrared therapy specialist, and she had some amazing infrared treatments. Um, she had this massage bed cocoon you could lay down in and it treated your whole body with infrared and massage you at the same time. Oh my gosh, talk about bliss. Um, so I always have had a dramatic response to sauna therapy and I really love Korean saunas. So that's something I'll always go visit wherever I'm traveling to. I'll, there's a Korean sauna in the area. I usually go check it out. Um, and I have a sauna in my house that I use. And um, uh, Dr. Day, was, is that something that, that's helping you with the expression of your nervous system or is that something that's helping you with detoxing or is it both? Both, I believe. Um, I feel a dramatic change in my nervous system after doing it. And I, I have lights in my sauna as well. So there, I always do light therapy along with it. And if I'm not going into a full sauna, I have um, a far infrared mat with PEMF and red light therapy. So um that's what I've really learned throughout this journey is that some of the best tools that I found are not like pharmaceuticals or medicines or something that you just keep taking, but rather like actual physical tools. Um, so, but, but isn't, isn't it because most pharmaceuticals are really just designed to prevent you from feeling symptomology and that these tools that you're describing are designed to deal with the root cause yeah. I mean, not all pharmaceuticals are just covering symptoms. Some are designed to, for the root cause, but to be honest, I get the best response sometimes when I combine the root cause types of pharmaceuticals or medicines, like things that would go after biofilms or parasites or help with detox with these actual physical tools that help with detox. So for okay. example, like when I've done a sauna plus sit on a PEMF mat with far infrared therapy, and I've just taken methylene blue, which is a chemical that's an antibiotic biofilm agent that can be activated by red light and also helps our mitochondria. So it does multiple things as far as detox and clearing pathogens. Doing that in combination with sound therapy, ionic foot baths, that's really where I've seen like the most dramatic detox purges and then also dramatic changes in myself. Like, for example, when I first got sick again with my ISS, it got so severe that I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't get out of a wheelchair. And I've seen my patients go through this. Um, so it was very humbling to be in a situation where I knew that uh, my immune system was compromised to that point. And um, 
yeah, if I didn't have all these physical tools and thank God I was learning about things like methylene blue and, um, had good doctors who could prescribe me really expensive antiparasitics. Like I made a tremendous response with albendazole and getting out of the wheelchair. Um, but I don't think it was just the albendazole. And I think if I didn't do all the other physical therapies along with it, I would not have seen the results that I did. And okay. I had like leg swelling that went from uh, pictures that I don't know if most medical textbooks would even believe because it was so just crazy and to completely normal looking feet and legs again. So it makes wow. me wonder if what we could accomplish, if, especially in countries that we know these infections, we accept these infections as being real. Um, if we could use tools along with things like albendazole and ivermectin, physical tools, how much further we could get with patients and preventing relapse. Yeah. Uh, because what you're doing is you're layering your 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 treatment protocol. You're not identifying one treatment. You're trying to layer them and, and have them work together to help you overcome the challenges that you're facing at a particular time because there are so many causes uh, for um, you know your symptomology. You also have to come up with many solutions at the same time. Right. And then using physics at the same time as using like metaphysical techniques and seeing it all work synergistically has been really what's keeping me going and alive and wanting to keep doing this work in, on this planet, despite the fact that I feel like our government and medical institutions are really letting us down. Well, I mean, look, our government, our medical institutions are letting us down because we have an acute care system, right? And right. if you have if you have a, a acute illness or an acute injury, the system works wonderfully. It really does. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's when we pivot over to having a chronic uh, a chronic illness that the system just doesn't simply work. And I think part of the reason it doesn't work is because um, we're trying to offer care to as many people as possible. So it limits the amount of time that doctors can spend with patients, uh, the amount of time doctors can be paid to spend with patients. Uh, and because um, chronic illnesses are so complex and they're so individualized that you really need to have someone who A, understands this in a way that you do, and you would not understand this, but for your own journey, I don't want to, I, I certainly don't want to discount your intellectual capacity. Everybody who's listening to this knows how smart you are. I certainly want to discount your, your education. Clearly you're a very educated person, but I think combining that with your own personal experiences gives you insight into, into the complexity of these, uh, of these chronic illnesses that allows you to probably diagnose and treat chronic illnesses in a way that most doctors cannot. Yeah. I remember a doctor or a nurse telling me, you won't, you, you really won't get Morgellons disease until you get it. And that's really stood in, out to me, even in my clinical practice, even though I came into this professionally as a person who has been through that personal experience of having the disease, I still didn't fully understand it. I still didn't fully understand it until I really started sitting down with people and hearing their stories and right. making their stories. And the complexity of it, the more I learn, the more I realize how complex it is. And you're right, you don't have a system for that can handle this type of complexity. Um, and, and by the way, Dr. Yeah. Hayes, that's not unique to the US, right? We've heard some of our, our US uh, um, 
folks who uh, who've been on this podcast, some of our U.S. guests, who argue that you know that's a flaw in the American medical system. It's a flaw in the American insurance system, and we've interviewed people from around the world. Uh, yeah. Regardless of the of the system, you know, we have many many socialized um, folks who are who are being treated in socialized medical systems, and it's actually worse than our system, right? I mean, the amount of time you have to wait to be treated and the limitations associated with treatment is much worse in a socialized system, despite some believing that that would be a better system. It doesn't matter if it's Canada, Israel, um, you know, um, the UK, uh, you know, Australia. Yeah. I mean, we you know, you're, the, the 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 treatment that people with chronic illness, specifically Lyme disease. Um, are receiving in in those systems is substantially uh, less rigorous than the than, than what's available to folks in the U.S. So uh, it really is just unfortunately, you know, chronic illness is um, is very very difficult to properly diagnose and is very difficult to treat when you're not giving medical professionals enough time and resources to do that. I, I really think right. that's crucial. Yeah. And I, I get calls actually from Australia, New Zealand, UK. So I hear what you're talking about. It's even more challenging to get things like ivermectin in the UK. And I know through that New Zealand's gone through shortages of certain antiparasitics and having a harder time with certain vectors like scabies. And so, yeah, I, I actually do get phone calls from all over the world. Sure so I'm very aware that we don't have a good system for this really anywhere. Um, and we haven't had one for a really long time. And I watched my grandma go through her whole health journey with maybe, you know, if that's what she had being a having juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I watched her her entire life get um different treatments throughout time and different diagnoses from doctors based on the paradigm at the time. So a lot of it is focused on what are we doing at the time. And right now, a lot of it's focused on biological agents. So um, things that would be used for autoimmune diseases. And there's this huge overlap between autoimmune disease and infectious disease. And we don't have great guidance on how to manage that overlap especially when the first thing they'll tell you about any biological agent is don't take it if you have an infection or a parasite. You know, look, another, another problem that we have from a systemic standpoint, just to sort of follow up uh, that line of our conversation, is that, um, you know, we've been set up to believe that we don't have to take responsibility for our own health that we'll be able to go to a doctor, the doctor will be able to diagnose us, they'll be able to give us a speedy, you know, resolution, a pill or two, and we'll get better, right? And the truth is, especially if we have a chronic illness, that A, we have to learn how to use the medical system, and B, we have to respond with ability. We have to take responsibility for our own health, despite being trained to respect doctors. And I say that with all due respect to you, because I have a lot of respect for you, but we have to respect doctors and, and, and they know best and they'll get us better. And, you know, we're set up to believe that, um, you know, that it's going to be done for us when in fact, uh, we really have to do it for ourselves in conjunction with support from doctors. I, you know, on this podcast, we always, always urge people to, develop their treatment care in conjunction with their doctors. You shouldn't be doing this on the, your own. And we do not support those who believe you have to become your own doctor. We need people like Dr. Day to help us to develop the frameworks we need for our individualized care. But at the same time, we do have to be full participants in this process. And, and the American medical system for sure has set us up to believe that, uh, that we do not have to be participants. 
yeah, there's that problem. And then there's some, um, there's a lot of greed in our system too. And I mean, we're a for-profit system in many ways. Most companies are. So it's hard when insurance companies aren't going to cover a treatment, but a pharmacy wants thousands of dollars for that treatment for even a patient who's been their best advocate to sometimes get care. And so it's been frustrating practicing over time. I thought it might get better that we'd have more treatment um, accessibility and acceptance for Lyme patients, but unfortunately it's gotten somewhat worse. Um, some of the antiparasitics have been found to be also working for cancer, which has driven up their price. And even though they're available now, um, they're not like as generics, they haven't necessarily come down in price. Um, and so what I'm seeing happening a lot, and to be honest, it's hard to be a doctor because we have this, we have a hard choice to make sometimes and that I can see why some patients have gone without doctors completely and gone to find their own treatment. Sometimes treatments that as a doctor, I can't even prescribe them. It's not because it's not a good treatment. It's just, we don't have it in our country or it's restricted for some reason. Um, and I like patients to be honest with me when they're taking treatments, but at the same time, it's really hard on any doctor to, to take on the responsibility on their medical license to be managing patients like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, no, it, it, it's really yeah, I mean, difficult. Like, how do I, how do I navigate all of this? Make sure our patients get better because that's the end goal, but make sure that I can still continue to serve all patients. And it's, knowing it's, that the tools in the United States are limited and for not great reasons sometimes. Sometimes it's just like they took Bentazol off the market because there's all Bentazol. Well, those are two different antiparasitics in so many ways. I mean, yeah, they're the same class, but one crosses the blood-brain barrier, one doesn't. One costs a lot more than the other. So that was like something that kind of rocked my world as I was practicing is realizing oh, my mebendazole prescriptions no longer go through and seeing the FDA changes that have not allowed us, instead of helping us get treatment, have kind of hindered treatment. And then, then the tests, don't get me started on that, how we don't have great tests that are reliable in trying to figure out if a patient still has an infection, especially ones that are covered under insurance. So yeah, yeah the whole thing are... And and I and I'm really really enjoying our time together. But you, but I I, I do have to I do have to uh, be fair to you and your family. You've been with us for two hours, so I'm gonna I'm going to not take the not take the uh, the, the teaser on the test, and I'm not going to uh, talk with you about medical licenses either, because I think both of those topics could take us on for hours. But I do want to talk to you about the transformation that you've gone through personally and professionally as a result of having gone on this journey, because right, there are beautiful elements to a Lyme disease journey. Uh, it does give you a shortcut to identity, to purpose, to mission. So talk to us about how you as a young person and as a young professional um, have be become much more mature spiritually uh, as a result of going on this journey. This journey has been I don't know exactly when it started, but I will say it started in college and it was so 
devastating, I remember at the time, to be removed from my environment that I was in. But looking back, it wasn't a good situation to be in. Like, I had a toxic boyfriend who wasn't treating me well. Um, I had toxicity in my life in all different areas. I had a really hard time trying to fit in in L.A. Um, I remember that I felt um, very excited that I could be in this whole new city environment, but I was facing challenges that I didn't even recognize what they were. Like, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't go socialize and make it to the other side of the city like all my other friends could um, because my energy started crashing and I had so many urinary issues that I couldn't even drive in a car. And um, so even though I remember my life being like really exciting and I didn't have like that balance that you needed to be able to live in a way that is actually healthy. Like I'm not surprised my body started giving me symptoms and signs. And I'm so glad that my, I did get such severe symptoms and signs because it was a huge wake up call that I needed to make drastic changes in my life. And it was what inspired me to really follow my first goal and mission in life to become a doctor. That's really what got me back into medical school and then got me looking into medicine in a completely different way. And um, I remember it was a hard decision of whether I should go to naturopathic medical school or, or just conventional medical school. But then after my brother got so sick and was not getting better with conventional medicine, um, I brought him to Portland because I was so afraid my parents were going to get divorced over it um, that I had him, he was sleeping in my backyard because at that time he was not able to be in most buildings. So he was in a tent and um, just seeing his transformation with working on not just the physical aspects, but because we both went to the Chinese medicine side of our clinic, they worked with us so much on spiritual aspects and emotional aspects. Um, and I remember my brother even had an experience where he remembered a past life and just seeing how that seemed to change and shift things for him in a dramatic way. Um, I don't think I would have had any of those experiences if I hadn't gone through an illness like this or watched him go through it and then also had resources to really ancient knowledge and professionals actually having access and utilizing that ancient knowledge. So I, it's, it's hard because I feel like um, in some ways my brain is operating on two different levels that I've had this these teachings from great shamans on energy work and healing on that and that realm and have come so far with some of that work but also has had dramatic experiences and changes by learning the infections that I have how my biochemistry affects me how diet affects me how lifestyle all of the actual physical things that we think of in the 3d so I've also seen me become unbalanced in becoming more almost too hard on myself. Um, I think, you know, as you're trying to become a naturopathic doctor, you're wanting to set not only, I, I've not had a big demand on myself to not only get better, 
but to be the example for patients too. So I did notice that that was something that I had to find some balance with in not being too hard and judgmental on myself, giving myself some leeway that I'm not going to be perfect, but also realize that those core values need to be core values because I've seen the consequences of how life can go if they're not. Um, yeah, so. Oh, that was really powerful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so the final question I'm going to ask you um, is uh, your mom, who's been such a wonderful and supportive person in your life and on your journey, uh, comes into your room after this podcast. And she shows you that she has a tick biting her on her arm. What would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? That's a really good and tough question. Um, well, I think my mom has already been on a chronic Lyme disease journey, to be honest. Uh, so hopefully not another one. Um, well, I have a great tool that helps remove ticks that I got at the Lyme disease conference in Texas when I was there. So I know a lot of people remove the ticks with tweezers or different techniques, but um, I would probably try that tool out just because I haven't had very many opportunities to try it out. Because <laughs> um, that's gonna be one of your first things you wanna do, right, is remove the tick. And I always try to educate people to keep the tick if possible, because you can get the tick tested. Um, and then as far as treatment, uh, I still am a, very much in, in the stance that we should still always do conventional treatments. Like we should do doxycycline. Although I don't think that that's usually enough. Like in my case, for example, right. I had doxycycline as a treatment, but still had symptoms later. Um, so I'm a huge fan of herbs. I've seen herbal formulas and maybe it's because of my experience on the Chinese medicine side that I gravitate more to the Chinese herbal formulas, but I've seen some Chinese herbal formulas make a huge difference in patients' recovery. And not only that, change their lab results. Like I've seen it work kind of like you would with doxycycline to try to provoke a negative test to become positive. Um, some of the Chinese formulas have been successful in doing that for me. So um, uh, yeah, I would say, I would probably recommend that. Um, and maybe some more of the physical tools that I told you about. So um, making sure that depending on where the bite is, if there's anything that we can do to prevent the chance that any infection would go straight into the bloodstream. So um, hydrotherapy is something that comes to mind that could be perhaps used. Um, trying to remember what I've recommended to patients in the past, because I've done this a lot. Uh, I have a whole standard protocol that I have on Fullscript, which is the platform I use to make supplement recommendations. And so I have a whole tick bite exposure protocol that has a lot of different herbs and nutrients and things that would help your immune system, because that's a lot of it too, right, is how good our immune system is responding at the time. Um, but I am waiting for their, them to come up with a, a better first line antibiotic treatment. I'm, my fingers are still crossed 
that we're going to come up with a different initial guideline. Um, do you ask this question to most doctors? And we we ask this question to every single person we interview um, because it's actually how we started here at Think Bootcamp. And I'm, I'm going to make sure that we compare our tick bite blueprint that we have on our website to your uh, your protocol. And we'll see if there's something that we can uh, share or add to each other's protocols. Yeah. I'm really glad that you you have uh, you have kindly put up your protocol and and you are you are actually a wonderful wonderful person. I, we've really uh, I've really enjoyed this interview. I know our community is really going to enjoy this interview. So uh, let let's close out by uh, by sharing with folks how they can get in touch with you and what type of services you're offering. And I do I certainly want to let our community know that we have added Doctor Day to our doctors page. Um, if you go to our podcast page and you go to the drop down menu. We have some information um, uh, regarding uh, Dr. Day, if you'd like to work with her. And uh, I, I did invite Dr. Day to, to update that portion of our page so that uh, it may be a little bit more user-friendly. So we'll be working on that um, certainly before this uh, episode is published. So can you please, Dr. Day, let folks know uh, what services you offer and how they can get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you on their journey? Yeah, so you can visit my website, um, dailywellness.com and that's spelled um, similarly to my name so d-a-y-l-y wellness.com and I offer virtual care for patients in Oregon so I do have a requirement that my patients need to be in Oregon at the time of the visit for my license um, but I can see patients all over the state and have patients in other states who will travel into the state to see me for virtual care. So um, the majority of my practice is Lyme disease um, with a special focus on Morgellons disease. So I feel like um, if that's what you're dealing with, that I have probably more experience than most practitioners in that particular niche. So um, I would be willing to see all patients from all, like I said, I've seen patients from all over the world who come to Oregon to get proper diagnosis and at least start care. Um, and right now my practice is fairly busy. So I'm taking applications for next year, but I have current, um, my current patient load is full for this year. Um, and other than virtual care services, um, I do like to offer my patients ways that they can also do um, more of the physical therapies that I was talking to you about, some affiliated with some of those companies. Um, if patients are wanting more information about um, like things like the Zen um, neurotherapy, sorry, Zen by Nuvana, or like PMF infrared devices that you can use at home. Um, I used to have a lot more of that available in my clinic. And now that I'm in virtual practice, I've been spending more time in trying to figure out what are the tools that are helpful that you could use yourself at home. So if anybody has questions like that, feel free to reach out to me. And um, I would love to hear more patients' stories and see how I can help as far as diagnosing these challenging conditions and providing care. <laughs>